Would you turn with me, please, to the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation? Revelation 12. I find whenever I announce a text from Revelation, a murmur goes through the crowd. Everybody says, oh, goody, now we're going to get down to the good stuff. This is a, this is a book that's a largely misunderstood. It mystifies people, and they're always delighted to have someone try to uh, unravel it for them. I'm not sure I can do that. I do want to issue a, a, a bit of warning, though, this morning. The, uh, the purpose of this book is not merely to uh, satisfy our curiosity about the future. The purpose of Revelation, as all of Scripture, is to make us wise unto salvation. That is, it's to teach us about God's saving ways and to help us walk in them. I think sometimes we get lost in the symbols and we forget the purpose for which this book was originally written. Uh, Augustine's uh, associate, at least for a time, Felix Manikian, once said that he had found the orbits of the planets in the book of Revelation, and Augustine's comment was, the purpose of the book is to make Christians of us, not astronomers. And that's a good word to keep in mind. This is a book uh, which which John says uh, was written so we can obey its principles. My feeling is that this book was written so we can get going when the going gets tough. It explains for us why life becomes so grim and so difficult and what we can do in order to... Uh, to cope with life and face its demands, meet them head on. Though much of the book is cast in the future, the principles obtained now are true for, for us today. We need to keep that in mind as we, uh, as we read through it. Chapter 12 marks the beginning of a, of a major division in the book. Uh, back in chapter 10, uh, John has given a little book to, uh, to eat. When he first eats it, it's, uh, it's sweet in his mouth, but uh, later it, it causes gastric upset. It, become, it becomes bitter, has an aftertaste, a bitter aftertaste. And uh, the purpose of that little, little symbol, I think, is to explain the nature of life. Life has about it a bittersweet quality, or really to put it more accurately, it has about it a sweet, bitter quality. We always begin life uh, very hopeful. We think uh, once we get out of school, uh, life will become sweet. Once we get married, then things will go well for us. And then we'll have children. And uh, then we'll find our vocation and we'll be fulfilled in that. And, and then we'll retire and we'll play with our grandchildren in our little white uh, house with the uh, rose bushes around the uh, twining up the fence. And, and we discover that that one after another of these dreams turns sour and bitter and, and things just don't work out the way we anticipate uh, them working. Why is that? Well, it's the book of Revelation that explains why life turns sour, why our lives become bitter, why there's so much ugliness in the world. It gives us a, a look behind the scenes at what's going on in the world, of, in the spirit world, that's unknown and unseen to us apart from Revelation. Now, uh, this is a style of literature that we're not normally familiar with. It's 
called apocalyptic literature. It was uh, quite popular during the time the book of Revelation was written, but we don't see it much anymore, and therefore we're, we often misunderstand the uh, style of the writing. Uh, John sees a series of symbols, which in my mind correspond to the sort of thing that you see in a political cartoon, like Oliphant's uh, cartoons. He represents the Democrats as donkeys and Republicans as elephants, and uh, when you see those animals, you know that they represent some greater reality. He's not talking about animals, he's talking about political entities. It's that sort of thing that John sees. He sees signs or symbols. And these symbols represent something else. Our task as interpreters is to try to determine what the symbols mean. We can't always be exactly sure, but but there are clues along the way, particularly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the best source for interpreting the symbols in the book of Revelation because there are what I think of as interpretational constants. The symbols tend to be employed the same way throughout the Old Testament, and they, they have the same meaning in the New. Now let's look at chapter 12. Let me read for you the first six verses, which, uh, uh, which have to do with two great signs, two, two symbols that John sees. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. That's the first sign. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, seven crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days, or approximately three and a half, uh, three and a half years. The first thing that John saw was a woman, and uh, there have been various interpretations of this woman, Mary Baker Eddy, who founded... Uh, uh, Christian science very modestly uh, interpreted the woman to apply to herself. She was the woman, and uh, Christian science is the child. Some theologians would say that the woman is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the child, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself. Some would say that the woman is the church who gave birth to, uh, to Christ. For myself, I think the simplest explanation, the one that makes the most sense, that's most reasonable to me in terms of uh, the Old Testament symbols, is to say that the woman is Israel. She represents the nation, the state of of Israel. In Genesis 37, uh, Joseph, one of the sons of, of Jacob, one of his 12 sons, had a dream in which he saw his father Jacob as the son His mother, Rebecca, is the moon, and his uh, brothers as 11 stars. He was the 12th star. The patriarchal family, thus, was symbolized as sun, moon, and stars. And it's from this family that Israel sprang. Jacob, you know, his name was changed to Israel. So I think what John sees here in Revelation 20 is simply a reflection of the symbols that are given to us in Genesis 37. The woman is Israel who gives birth to the child who is the Lord Jesus, uh, the Messiah. Isaiah said, unto us 
that is unto Israel. A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And Paul says in, uh, in Romans 9 that one of the privileges of Israel is that she gave birth to Messiah. And furthermore, uh, here in this chapter, in verse 5, the son is designated as the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, which applies directly to David and his line that will, will culminate in the Messiah. So in my own mind, there's no real question about who the woman is. The woman is Israel. She is with child. She is in labor. Uh, she's already experiencing labor pains to bring forth the child. And that's a symbolic way of saying that Israel, from her birth, was um, designed to carry the seed and ultimately bring into the world the uh, seed that was promised back in the uh, garden who would eventually trample on the head of the serpent. After the fall, God promised that one of Eve's descendants would crush the head of the serpent. That promise was reaffirmed throughout history to Abraham, and then to Abraham's son Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Judah, and then who was one of Jacob's sons, and then to David, and to all the, the line of David, all his descendants, the kings of, of the southern kingdom of Judah, and eventually our Lord Jesus came from that, that line. It was Israel's destiny to give birth to the to the Messiah. So the woman is Israel, the child is our Lord Jesus. Now the second sign uh, is, is described for us in verses 3 and following. Another sign appeared in heaven. It's a great red dragon. Uh, the, uh, the word that's translated red here is the Greek term that normally means fiery. It's difficult to know whether this is a description of his color or whether this is a fire-breathing uh, dragon. The word that's translated great is the word from which we got our word mega, mega ton. So this is a great red uh, fire-breathing mega dragon that, uh, that John sees. He has seven heads, which may be a description of the, uh, uh, of the difficulty one would have in trying to slay him, or it may be some indication of his vast intelligence. He has ten horns. Horns are a symbol of power, his ability to, uh, to conquer his enemies. And he has uh, ten diadems or ten thorn, uh, thr thrones on his head, which are a symbol of his, uh, of his authority, his right to rule, his power. Uh, furthermore, he is said to have a tail, verse 4. That's probably the uh, origin of the idea that Satan and anyone who is demonic has a tail. My father used to tell a story about Billy Nichols, who was a Scottish evangelist who once was preaching in Glasgow, and uh, he was being harassed by some man in the back of the crowd. Uh, he, he endured uh, his heckling for a, an hour or so, and finally it got on his nerves. man moved up to the front of the crowd, and he said, uh, Billy, how do you get your coat on over your wings? And Nichols' comment was, uh, I don't know, sir, how do you get your trousers on over your tail? Uh, <laughs> however, the, uh, the tail here again is a symbol. And, and I want you, if you will, to envision one of these uh, clear, beautiful, uh, crystal, uh, clear Idaho nights when you look up at the stars and you see just innumerable stars. And imagine, if you will, a great fiery dragon with his tail lashing the sky and sweeping from the sky something less than one half of all the stars that you can uh, that you can see. 
A third in the book of Revelation, I think, indicates something less than a half. It's a symbolic number. Now, stars in the book of Revelation represent angels. And I think this is a reference to what C.S. Lewis called the Grand Rebellion. Uh, information about Satan is very spotty in Scripture. We're not told much about his origin, uh, except that he's a creature. He's a created being. As I've said before, we Christians are not dualists. We don't believe in equal and opposite powers. God is the sovereign uh, ruler of the universe. He has all power. Uh, all other power is derived from him, and he created Satan. As the, the, the poem goes, uh, God made Satan, Satan made sin. God made the hot place to put Satan in. Satan didn't like it. He didn't want to stay. He's been acting like the devil ever since that day. Uh, there is at least a little bit of truth in that poem. God didn't make Satan. Satan did not create himself. He is not uh, omnipresent. He is not uh, eternal in his being. He, he was a created angel who fell. He, uh, he, he wanted to seize all authority for himself. And he drew with him in this grand rebellion, in this great conspiracy against God, less than one half of all of the, uh, the angels that God had, had created. So this, uh, his tale sweeping the heavens, I think, is a, is a symbol of that, of that event, that rebellion. And then we're told that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she gave birth, or when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That uh, gives us some idea... Of, of Satan's strategy, his objective. He wants to destroy God's plan to bring salvation to the world. He began, he overheard the conversation in the garden, you'll recall, when God said to Eve, your seed will bear the, uh, uh, will be the descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, uh, the serpent at that point realized that he had to do something to thwart and frustrate God's plan. And uh, through, through Cain, he killed Abel. It was the next seed. And uh, he uh, uh, was the one who induced Abraham to almost throw away his marriage with Sarah and almost throw Sarah away by lying about their relationship with the result that she went into Pharaoh's harem in Egypt. And uh, God's efforts to bring the seed through the woman would have been frustrated there. Uh, Satan shows up again in front of the woman in the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem. Numerous other incidents throughout history. Prior to that, there's the story of little Joash. In, he was one of David's descendants. God had promised that one of David's seed would be the Redeemer. And at one point in Israel's history, there was a, a woman who came to the throne. Her name was Athaliah. And she ruled as queen for a number of years, who tried to, uh, who tried to destroy David's dynasty. She massacred every descendant of David except one little boy, actually a very small child, an infant, whose name was Joash. And uh, had she been able to kill him, that would have brought an end to God's plan to bring salvation to the world. But that plan was frustrated and little Joash was saved and, and the line went on. And then, of course, ultimately at the cross, Satan thought he had won. And as the song goes, uh, when, when Christ died on the cross, the demons died. They thought this was it. We finally frustrated uh, the, the line of the seed. We've destroyed it. But uh, as, as the passage tells us, the, uh, the son was, was taken up after she gave birth to the son, who is to rule all nations. The child was caught up to God and, and to his throne so that uh, 
so that the dragon was defeated. He was frustrated in the end. And then we're told in verse 7 that at that point, and I, and I believe what John sees here is uh, the result of the cross itself. There was a great cosmic conflict that broke out at the point in our history where, where the cross occurred. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, the serpent of old, a name that identifies him with uh, the Garden of Eden. He's the one who insinuated himself into, into God's creation and seduced this uh, innocent, uh, lovely young woman away from God and away from her, from her husband, who is called the devil. The word means slanderer, the one who, who slanders God and his good intentions for us. And Satan, the word means adversary, the one who is opposed to everything God has in mind for us. God wants to make us restful. Satan wants to make us restless. God wants us to be hospitable. Satan wants us to be hostile to strangers. Every good intention that God has for us, Satan wants to suppress and, and thwart and frustrate. And he's the one who deceives the whole world by lying. Uh, lying to us about life. Lying to us about our marriages. Lying to us about what really satisfies. Uh, I, I got the uh, Reader's Digest sweepstakes uh, uh, notice here not too long ago, and it struck me the way uh, the the way it was worded. It said, "Mr. Roper, uh, their computer had had typed that that in very uh, very personal computer." Uh, Mr. Roper, it said, "If if you win the Reader's Digest sweepstakes, you will get uh, I've forgotten how much money two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. You will have eleven thousand dollars to pay down on a house. Uh, you will have." Uh, $10,000 to buy a new vehicle. Uh, you'll have this and that and the other. And then in, uh, in raised letters, all of your dreams will come true. And I say, poppycock. That's balderdash. I don't care what you buy. Your dreams aren't going to come true. You know, and we think of, of Satan lying to us through Playboy magazine and Hustler and and, and through uh, this sort of, you know, it comes at us through Reader's Digest and, and little golden books that we read to our children. It's the lie that somehow something in this life is going to satisfy us. And he's described here as the deceiver, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Uh, we're, we're inclined to think that Satan is winning. If you were to read through the first six verses of this chapter, you would think that that Satan is, is doing very well. He's the one that's written large. He's the one who seems to be in control. Uh, he's center stage, sweeping the stars away with his tail. The fact is, he's a loser. He, he's, been, he's a victim of this war in heaven. He didn't choose to come to earth. He was tossed out of heaven. God and, and his angels uh, sent him away from his presence and sent him down he came down to earth and uh, in verse 12 he reads uh, we read that uh, uh, he has great wrath knowing that he has only a, a short time he, he's frustrated and limited in the amount of time that's given to him in the sphere of his of his operation he no longer has access to God now let's read on beginning with verse 10 I heard a 
a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Uh, have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Uh, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. We just sang Martin Luther's hymn, His Wrath and Power Great. His wrath, uh, we experience his wrath because he's frustrated. He knows that he only has a short time. He has to do all the mischief he can because uh, God is going to curtail his, his activities. He can only go so far. He can only do so much. And, uh, and yet, he can do a great deal of harm to us. He can make our life here on, on earth uh, a hell. Uh, he can destroy our health. He can destroy our children. He can destroy our, major, uh, our marriages. He can ruin our businesses. Uh, but you see, he can't touch our relationship in heaven. He can't affect our relationship with, with God. He has no standing there. The, the issue of our salvation, which is the greatest issue of all, has been settled in our favor. He can create a lot of mischief in our life here, but he cannot ultimately, cannot ultimately hurt us. Uh, there are two moral classes in the book of Revelation. There are those who dwell in heaven and there are those who dwell on earth. And those, again, are symbolic references. Those who dwell on earth are those whose horizons are circumscribed by, by earth. They, just, they live for what they see and taste and touch and hold and can possess the, the, the things of, of this earth. They're earth dwellers. They're earth bound in their perspective. There's another moral class are described as those who live in heaven. doesn't mean they literally live in heaven. It's just that that's where their focus and their vision is. They're like those that Paul describes in Ephesians as seated in heavenly places with Christ. They're not preoccupied with things. They can have them, but they don't worship them because they know this is not ultimate reality. There's something more, something far greater. And therefore, the heavens and those who dwell in them, that's those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord, can rejoice, though the earth experiences great woe during this time. And particularly those who have nothing more to live for than just, just this. Okay. Now, the story goes on. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the man-child. And the two wings of the great, great, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. That corresponds to the uh, days that are described earlier in verse 6. This would be a period of three and a half years or three and a half units of something. She's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the explanation for anti-Semitism. That, that's a, a historic phenomenon for which there is no good rational explanation. Why have the Jews suffered so much throughout their history? What have they ever done to deserve what's happened to them? 
Well, this is why. In the very beginning, Satan has pursued the woman to destroy her so she cannot give birth to the, to the child. And after the child was born, he continued to harass and to persecute the woman. That's why Jews are hated and hounded throughout the world today. They are not Christ killers. It was Satan who inspired the Roman Empire and certain religious leaders within, within Israel to, uh, uh, to, to crucify Christ. It's Satan who is the Christ killer. And it's Satan who now wants to destroy the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is a sin. It's a deadly sin. It's wrong to hate Jewish people. As a matter of fact, one mark of Christians is that they'll love the Jewish people because they'll realize that through them came our scriptures, all of scripture, with certain exceptions, was written by Jews. Through them came Messiah. Through them came the blessing. We are the offspring, the seed of of Abraham. We are the spiritual Israel today, as as Paul tells us in Galatians 3. So that uh, if we really understand God's purpose for Israel, we'll love those people. And, and we'll nourish them. This uh, flood, I think, is a symbolic way of describing the flood of, of propaganda, anti-Semitic propaganda, the invectives, the calumny, the, the hate literature that's been distributed against Jewish people from the very beginning of, of their history. And uh, the earth drinking it up, I think, is a description of those nations which in times of, when Israel has been in times of peril, have opened their hearts and their homes to the Jewish people and have not listened to what's been said about them, but have protected them, as the Swiss did during the, the Second World War when, when Jews were flooding out of Germany to, to get away from, from Hitler and, his, and his, his, uh, his murder squads. Uh, it, we cannot hate Jewish people. We have to love them. They are God's people. They're the people that he chose and through whom he, he determined to bring salvation to the world. Uh, years ago, I remember flying back from Israel, uh, and seated right next to me was a young Israeli woman who was a student at, at uh, NYU. She was going back to New York. had been living on a kibbutz in Israel, and we struck up a conversation, and I asked her her name, and she said, Mikal. And I, my comment was, that's a noble name. And she chuckled, in case you don't know, Mikal was the first, well, it's actually the second wife, but the first queen of King David. And uh, she's not very well known in Scripture, and this girl chuckled, and she said, you seem to know something about the Old Testament. Well, you know, I, where does your understanding of the Old Testament come from? And I said, well, I, I love the Jewish people, and I love their, their Scriptures, because they're my Scriptures as well, and, and from the Jewish people came the Messiah and so forth. And, and she was just astonished. She said, everywhere I go, I find hate coming from Christians. Rarely do I find that kind of, of concern for Jewish people. But that ought to be true of all of us. That's not anything unique. We ought to love the Jewish people. And we need to realize where anti-Semitism comes from. If we, if we are anti-Semitic, then we have aligned ourselves with the serpent who is trying to destroy the people of God. And uh, we need to drink in this uh, propaganda, as the earth does, uh, to keep it from affecting us and open our hearts and our homes to these people. Now, there's another class of people who are said to be persecuted after the woman is protected. Oh, and by the way, I think the wilderness is described here is simply a symbolic description of the dispersion of the Jewish people. One of the reasons why they've been scattered all over the world is to protect them. Hitler tried to destroy uh, the Jewish nation, and he, 
He would have succeeded if he could have gotten his hands on them. He, he massacred six million plus Jews, as you know. But he couldn't destroy them all because they were scattered all over the world. I think this is a description. Their flight into the wilderness is a description of the various dispersions that have kept them out of the hands of, of the evil one. But uh, John sees that after the serpent persecutes the woman, he turns on her offspring, and that is us. We are the offspring of the woman, spiritually speaking. Back in uh, Galatians, uh, the third chapter, Paul says, describes us uh, Gentiles as sons of God through faith in Messiah, Jesus for all of you who were baptized into, into Messiah have clothed themselves with Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus or Messiah Jesus. And if you belong to Messiah, if you put your faith in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Same word that's used in Revelation 12. You're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. All the good things that were promised to Abraham uh, become ours in, in the seed. And I think this is a description then of Satan turning his wrath and his power against the church in order to exterminate the church. And I think what's described here is a period of intense persecution at the end of human history, the last three and a half years before our Lord uh, comes back. Now, while Satan will do his worst during this three and a half year period, uh, he's doing everything he can right now. And that's why life is bitter. That's why we struggle in our marriages. That's why churches split. That's why we're under such uh, intense uh, temptation to, to sin and uh, to, to give up our, our, uh, our walk with, with God. It's because Satan wants to destroy the church. He cannot destroy the Son, and he knows his time is limited. But uh, he's doing all the mischief he can to thwart and frustrate God's plan. That being the case, how do we overcome? How do we win? Well, John has already told us. Let me read again verse 11. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. Three things. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. See, it was the cross that wrought the victory that we experience. When Christ died on the cross, he died for your sins and mine, all of them, past, present, and future. The blood of the cross is not a magic formula that we, that we apply. It's simply a description of a, of a historic fact. Jesus shed his blood. He gave up his life for us, for you and for me, so that we would never have to pay the penalty of our sin. And it was at that point that Satan was cast out of heaven. He could no longer accuse the brethren. The issue is settled in our favor in heaven. He can do terrible things to us here, but he cannot touch our relationship in heaven. That's secure. Nothing will destroy that. Nothing you can do or I can do will frustrate the grace of God or undo the effects of, of the cross. We overcome by the blood of the cross, just reminding ourselves of Christ's death. Most of you know that, that Dave Watkins uh, took his life Tuesday morning. He'd been deeply, deeply depressed. And uh, he, he took his own life. And, and one of the questions that has come back, uh, has come to me time and again is, you know, what, what does this do to David's relationship to God? Is this the unpardonable sin? 
does this somehow separate him from the love of Christ? And, and I've been able to share uh, again and again the fact that, that nothing David could do could undo the grace of God. Paul says in, in Romans 8 that um, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, neither uh, height nor depth nor things present nor things to come nor angels nor demons nor anything else can separate us, separate us from the love of God in, in Christ Jesus and nothing that David thought or did, even his final act, can separate him from the love of God. He's in the Lord's presence today. And as I said at the funeral, I can envision that scene where the Lord said to David when he stepped into his presence, David, it wasn't quite time, but I'm just so glad to see you. Welcome home. And we need to remember that. We're safe and secure. The issue is settled there. Maybe we may have hell on earth here, but Satan cannot really touch our relationship to God. He's been cast out of God's presence. The accuser of the brethren has been has been cast out. And then secondly, he says uh, that we overcome him by the word of our testimony. And I think uh, this, is, this is analogous to Paul's statement in Romans 10 when he says, not only are we to believe in our hearts, we're also to confess with our mouths. I think he's talking about making a public proclamation of our, of our faith. My experience has been that if we're not willing to put ourselves on the line, if we're not willing to to confess Jesus as Lord publicly, then we probably won't stand when the heat's on. We'll bail out when things get tough. I, my, my counsel to young men that are going into the, into the armed services or going off to college is be sure that, that you make it very clear from the very beginning that you're a Christian. It'll make things so much easier later on than if you go in as a closet Christian and, and, uh, and later try to talk about your, your relationship to Christ. If, if we don't do that, if we don't declare ourselves, it's so easy to get caught up uh, in our offices in uh, you know, the, the filthy speech and the sexual innuendo and the dirty stories and the flirting and, and all the stuff that, that goes on. It's just so easy to get gathered up into that. But if we take a stand at the very beginning, if we give a word about our testimony, it's so much easier to stand when the going gets, gets tough. You, you know that. And I know that. We need to declare ourselves. You don't need to be self-righteous about it. You don't need to be super religious or weird. You don't need to be a nerd. Uh, <laughs> just be transparent. Just be what you are. You're a son of God. So just let people know. After the first service, a young woman shared with me that she just changed jobs and has gone to work for a, the brokerage and First thing she did when she walked into the office is, is to tell her boss that she was a believer. And they started a conversation, and she shared how she and her husband do uh, teach our marriage uh, pre-marital counseling classes here. Of course, everybody now knows who I'm talking about. But uh, uh, actually, when she first walked into his office, he said, Are you married? And she said, Yes. And he said, How's your marriage going? And she said, Great. And, and, uh, and then she went on to talk about her marriage class. And he asked if, if the families in that, uh, in that brokerage could go through that premarital counseling class. What a door that opened up for her. What an opportunity. It's simply because she's willing to be upfront and honest about her relationship to, uh, to Christ. And then thirdly, uh, we overcome 
because we do not love our life even to death. And, of course, ultimately he's talking about martyrdom here, a willingness to give up our, our life for the sake of Christ. But I think there's far more than that uh, than martyrdom uh, in this verse. I, there are two classes of people in the world. There are those who fear death. Hebrews uh, 2 describes a certain class of people who fear death and thus are held captive by Satan to do his will. They play into Satan hand, Satan's hands because they're afraid of death. They're afraid of death because they don't think there's anything more. You have to live for this life. Death, therefore, becomes the end of life and something to be, to be feared. And so you have to live for now. He who accumulates the most toys wins. And so you spend all your time and effort accumulating things and, and getting to the top of the corporate pile and pushing and shoving to get your own way and demanding that everybody cater to you and that everybody uh, that you win all the arguments and that everybody center on you because this is all there is. And if this is all there is, why not go for all the gusto? But there are also those who don't love their life unto death who really are very careless about this life because it doesn't matter how many toys we accumulate, they'll never satisfy. Anyway, what matters is that someday we're going to step into God's presence and they will have it all. So who cares what you lose in this life? It doesn't matter. People take your privacy away from you. You can give that up. They, they take something that's very precious to you. That's all right. You can give it up. Because, as Jesus said, we, we have to bear our cross daily. That is the place of death. We can put ourselves to death because we don't fear death in this life. There's more coming. Far more. When I was at Peninsula Bible Church, I had the privilege of meeting a, an elderly missionary who was a uh, a dear friend of Ray Stedman's who uh, had served faithfully in, in uh, mainland China when the Red Purge began. She was uh, tortured by the Red Chinese and uh, eventually was able to escape, battered and, and broken in body. She was, at the time I met her, uh, almost 80 years of age. She came back to the States, uh, was in a hospital for about a year, recovering from her experiences in China, got out of the hospital, went back to her mission board and said, I want to go back. He said, you can't go back. In the first place, you can't go into mainland China. She said, well, that's all right. I'll go to Taipei. I'll go to Taiwan. They said, well, you can't do that. You're 80 years of age. You're broken in health. We're not going to send you over to your death. We're not going to be responsible for that. She said, all right. So she went home, gathered some of her friends together, raised her own support, and went back. And as far as I know, if, if, unless she's gone home to be with the Lord, she's, she's still there. And that's what it means to not love your life unto death. See, she was willing to fling her life away because there are greater issues at stake than just clinging to life. And her favorite poem was one by Samuel Rutherford that I'd like to read to you in closing. When I am dying, how glad I shall be that the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. I shall not care whatever I gave of labor or money one sinner to save. I shall not care that the way has been rough, that thy dear feet led the way is enough. And when I'm dying, how glad I shall be that the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. Father, we uh, thank you again for this great encouraging word of yours. This word that puts starch in our spine, that gives us new desire to walk with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.